I have uh, one task uh, to make pretty sure that um, you are very glad John is back in the pulpit next week. <laughs> uh, we um, hardly can believe it's been three years since we um, were so privileged and honored to be in the transition with John and Chrissy and um, just be blessed into a different ministry. And um, we're kind of at that stage in the ministry. We've got really important balls up in the air. We're just not sure which one we're going to drop first. But um, we continue to work with couples and continue to work building a court uh, uh, a court intervention pilot up in Isanti County, and um, two new things you can kind of pray for. One, the leadership in Minnesota of the YMCA has come to Hope for Dirty Home and asked us to help them put marriage and family offerings into their um, their membership thing. So they'll be, I think it's beginning this week, up in Elk River. Uh, we're doing a pilot up in the, the YMCA just offering uh, stuff on marriage and family, and um, they have encouraged us that if that goes well, they're going to want us to duplicate that in all of the YMCAs in Minnesota, so uh, you can pray about that. Uh, and then also, Minnesota Teen Challenge has begun a discussion with us about how can we partner together to help them do the kind of job and the ministry that they want as people are exiting that program. Um, you know, some of you are familiar with the incredible work that Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge does. And the people work so hard with the Lord's power and, and great counseling uh, and, and great uh, addiction recovery programs to get free, oftentimes only to find that by the time they finish their program, there's no family left to come back to. And so um, pray about that. Pray about that initiative as we... Um... One other thing John's going to mention at the end of the service... Um, just an announcement uh, for us to be aware of um, the home going of Steve Gould, uh, former pastor at, um, at New Joy. It used to be Crystal Church. Uh, one of the reasons why, especially for John and me, that is just not only came as such a shock, but just kind of hit us. John's in a, um, was in a pastoral cohort with Steve. And Steve and I have been friends over the years, and the deepest connection we had is that the very first weeks I came here, some of you remember that the church was kind of so, I don't want to say desperate, but they, they had us commute for three months from December, <clears throat> January, February, while our house was selling. It was a wonderful experience, uh, but I had never been a senior pastor before. I was just so green. I didn't even know what I didn't know. But Steve and Pam would pull through the uh, Dairy Queen on um, Fridays, and they would sit in this parking lot, eating their ice cream, praying for a pastor who was scrambling to put something together for Sunday. And so a tremendous heart of a servant. And that has impacted me and marked me. Um, I am a, just a devout fan. I will not even go to McDonald's for a cone. I'm a devout fan of Dairy Queen now because of that spiritual. John said, you can preach on anything you want. And I said, well, how about Psalm 95? Have you preached on that this summer? He goes, no, I haven't. And so I thought, um, all right, well, then. I said, well, John, you're going to go to the men's retreat, aren't you? And he goes, 
oh no. Which I sort of interpreted the elder subscript was there's no way you're going to turn him loose and then not be there to make sure things don't fall apart. So um, <clears throat> why did I pick Psalm 95 instead of things on marriage and, and family? I picked Psalm 95 because I needed this. So you'll have to forgive the selfishness. Um, I needed this. There are times in our life when we need more, something more central than the felt need at the moment. Marriage and family, you know this is tremendous, um, tremendously um, important. It's on our heart. It's what we've given our lives to. But as I work with people, it also becomes evident to me that many people are struggling with issues in their marriage and in their family because they haven't uh, really kept a passionate, fervent, worshiping walk with the Lord. Um, I work with a number of husbands now whose wives are either not ready or not able to let them come back into the home. And we are just focusing on what does God want you to do? I know you're in a painful marriage. What is God telling you to do? Pursue him. Rather than trying to please your spouse, start living to please the Lord. And so that's kind of where this comes from. It also comes from, I, I really resonated with John's message last week. I really appreciated it. Um, and maybe like you, this has just become an oppressive political cycle for me. I, I'm not speaking for anyone except for me, but I hope, I hope this political year is the year that evangelicals sort of give up the dream that there's a savior on Capitol Hill. We, we need to be involved wherever God calls you. It's an incredible calling, an incredible costly calling to be a Christ follower in public life. But for a long time, I think we have believed that there's going to emerge a savior on Capitol Hill. There was a savior on Calvary's Hill, but not Capitol Hill. And so we need to be in prayer, all of the things that John encouraged us and taught us from God's word. But that is just sort of, I've just never been so discouraged with our choices. Uh, I've never felt at a season of my life that we live in such an unsafe world. And I'm not a pessimist. I'm a, you know, I'm a bottle, half full kind of guy. And as one pastor was sharing with me, um, he had, uh, I had been mentoring him. We had done training in his church. And so he, he engaged in some divorce intervention with a couple in his church. And here he is between two attorneys, two spouses, and he's in the middle. And both attorneys are beating up on him in front of the judge. And he wrote me a note and said, Russ, my heart was like a pinball in a high stakes game. And I just feel batted back and forth. Um, I shared in the first service that um, Mel's doing really well healing from bilateral knee replacement. That means both at the same time. Aren't we crazy? Um, she's doing really, really well. But I hit a wall during her care I'd been in the hospital for four days sleeping, you know, with her in her room. And then we came home, had all of this stuff set up for in-care. We were on our way to the place where she was going to stay for, for 10 days. And um, it just fell apart. I, I won't go into explaining. It fell apart. We ended up at home the day she was discharged with no meds, no adaptive furniture, not even a wheelchair. Nothing fit through our bathroom doors. 
Not even one of those really cool raised seats that's really hard to get rid of once you get used to them, you know? I mean, we get to be my age, it's like, no, I ain't taking that one back. We're, how much did that one cost? We're keeping that puppy. I had become discouraged and exhausted and dehydrated, and I ended up in the emergency room on a Sunday night getting a very expensive transfusion of Gatorade in a bag. And it reminded me once again of how fragile our lives are. And then God gave me, as I was just working through the Psalms this summer, as I was kind of coming out of that, God gave me this phrase, worship is the safe harbor of the human heart. When you and I feel like we're just on this tossed in this sea in our culture of more nonsense per square inch, there is so much information and no wisdom, no common sense. We're just out of control. I don't know, but my heart just sometimes, where can I just remember that I've got an anchor? I'm not going to lose it. And David in Psalm 73 went through this experience when he was sort of complaining about the wicked, you know? And, oh, they're always healthy. They're always making money. They never have troubles and all this stuff. And then David says, I almost lost my foothold. I almost lost it. I almost came unglued. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. I understood that all of the stuff I was tossed about and I was worried about and I was being besieged by, God's got it all covered. And not only does he have it all covered, he actually directs the final chapter in what we're experiencing, whether it's in our culture or whether it's in your home, whether it's in your personal life or your marriage. That's a humbling and frightening thing. So Psalm 95 helps us re-anchor ourselves in worship, and that's gonna be the focus of what we're gonna talk about this morning. And just kind of this, you, you are a well-taught church. I love when we're able to be here, worship, teaching. So this is all repetition for you. But just a reminder that worship is something that we do. It's an activity. Richard Foster said, it's where we can be ignited by the divine fire. And I just added out of my own journal, it's also where we can be comforted by the divine presence. It's something that we do and do corporately. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, as it gets closer to the time when Christ is coming, don't neglect corporate worship and teaching. Don't forget the assembling of yourselves together as a body. This is a habit of some. Some people think they can go it alone. Some people think the church has nothing. Don't you get that mindset. This is where you and I can refocus our lives. Worship is also something that we are. It is our core identity. So when you and I feel like we need to be in a place where we have more of God and he has more of us, we are connecting with our core identity. In the Old Testament, the definition of an Israelite was literally one who worships Jacob's God. And Paul gives us the definition of a New Testament Christ follower in Philippians 3.3. He says, Christ followers are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
So I want you to do this with me. You just sung it. Put your hand on your own throat or the throat of someone sleeping next to you, unless that's too creepy. Unless you were doing that shortly before you came in this morning, which um, for some of us that has happened. Okay, so can you feel your vocal cords? Okay, everybody have your hand there. So sing with me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Those vocal cords, the whole construct of your body, but particularly your vocal cords, have been designed by your Creator to give Him praise. Not to scream at your kids, not to yell at your spouse, not to lose it when you're in the middle of... um, road rage giving someone the international sign of disapproval. You and I, our core identity is that we were created to worship. We were created to give him praise. So let's look at Psalm 95. There's a structure I want you to see. Um, Like most of the books in scripture, most of the chapters have Uh, an organizing theme or principle. In some of the Psalms, it's a little bit easier because they have what are called uh, strophes or poetic paragraphs. You know that if you picked up a book and there were no paragraphs, there were no changes of thought or changes of uh, of rhythm or pace, it'd be really difficult to follow along. And so you'll notice that there, and and I, I don't know if these are inspired or not because Charles Spurgeon says there's only two. You know, there's the the verses one through seven is rings like a church bell and verses eight through 11 are like a funeral dirge. Well, um, Chuck and I can argue about that when we get to heaven. Uh, He's probably right. He's a scholar and um, wonderful uh, preacher, um, late 18th century, but um, he's dead and I'm here. So we get to use mine. And so there's one movement Okay, verses one and two, that's, that's uh, a, um, kind of one complete thought. And around worship, it's, it's the invitation. We're invited to worship. Verses three through five, it's about we're reminded why we need to worship. Verses six and seven is about we are instructed how to worship. And then there's this weird thing at the end of this psalm. And you'll notice that at the beginning, if, you're, if your text reads like mine, right above verse eight, the, the um, translators have put this little phrase. Today, if you hear his voice, do you see that? It's sort of connected to verse eight. What happens here is something kind of unique because David has been speaking in first person. It's not ascribed to David, but the writer of Hebrews tells us David wrote this. So David is, is going along and encouraging us, instructing us, reminding us about worship. And all of a sudden, it turns to first person. And God is speaking in verses eight and following as if David now becomes simply an oracle. And God says, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa, where your fathers tested and tried me. For though they had seen what I did, 
For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And so that is a loving warning at the end of worship. So let's jump in a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this invitation, um, verses one and two. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. We are invited in worship to experience his presence. And notice three times in the text, David is saying it, but David is reflecting the heart of God. Three times this phrase, come, let's come together. Let's come together. But the, the issuing of the invitation through David to come is based on the fact that he knows God is a God of, write this down, open arms. One of the great truths of the Bible one of the great truths of our God is that he is a God of open arms. Isaiah 1.18, he says, come now, let us reason together. Jesus says in Matthew 11.28, come to me, all you who are weary to exhaustion and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Now when Jesus is talking to that weird little Jewish IRS man who works for the Roman government and he's under the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, dude with the funny name, Come down. I want to be in your home today. Worship is the experience where you and I are reminded that God is for you. God is for you. I often at times have to remind couples and especially spouses when it becomes difficult where there's a spouse that is not able or willing to allow to come back or the healing's not finished or there's an addiction program that needs to be completed before and it just, the, the marriage doesn't feel welcoming. They're not worried about whether they'll ever go back together and I have to look in the eyes of a spouse that is just struggling. Is this ever, will I ever stop feeling, no, you're not welcome here. No, I don't forgive you. No, I don't believe you. I don't think I'll ever believe you. I have to remind them that there is a God in heaven who says, I don't care how much you failed. I don't care how dirty your hands have become. I don't care how broken your heart is. I have open arms. The sign across my chest is not no trespassing. It's welcome home. When we come to worship, we need to be aware of the fact that we are responding to his invitation to come into his presence and then secondly, to express our praise. Notice the strong verbs, sing, shout, extol. There's a lot of energy there. Psalm 150, it's, not, it's one of those psalms that you can't read very long without thinking, I'm supposed to be doing something here, and there's an antiphonal thing going back and forth that I'm supposed to be expressing my praise. Now at this point, I could lower my voice and I could slow my words down, and all of you would start wondering, is he having another one of those things? You remember the event? I think in heaven there's going to be this perfect balance of reflective, quiet, this is my story, this is my song. And then in things and in categories we can't even imagine, there are going to be glorious outbursts of loud, incredible praise. And you know, Mel and I visit a lot of churches and some of the younger church plants, we just love it because they hand out a bulletin and a little package of earplugs at the same time. You know, sort of like if it's too loud, you're too old, but sit in the back and put this, you'll be fine. I think some of us are going to be amazed. I think the depth 
and the robustness of our worship will envelop us in ways we have never yet imagined. You taste it a little bit, right? This wonderful worship team, they kind of pull back the volume a little bit and this, this wonderful, uh, it's partly the acoustics of this, but you can hear, we can hear one another sing. We can hear one another using these worship instruments. But you do have to use your worship instrument. Express your praise, extol him. It can be loud, but not lewd. It can be robust without being rowdy. This is why you were created. Secondly, we're reminded of why we need to worship. Look at verses three through five. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. You remember seeing those things, you see them on YouTube or sometimes on, on a National Geographic special. People have spent tens of thousands of dollars and, um, and months and months and sometimes years of training to get to the top of Everest. And if they don't die on the way up there or die on the way down, they've got pictures where they planted a flag that says, I made it to the summit. And God says, welcome home. I've been here all along. How do you like those rocks? I made those with the word of my mouth. And how many times, those of us who are believers and those of us who may be from a secular background, how many times do we sit on the summit of a mountain or at the edge of the Grand Canyon and in this false vibrato say, how wonderful I am. And we don't realize everything you see, every place your foot can stand, everything you touch belongs to him. Here's a little soul candy for you, a video by Chris Tomlin.
you're watching that. What exactly is it on your calendar tomorrow that that God cannot handle? What fear are you facing? What seems so insurmountable? And to my own heart, Russ, what are you so worried about? And God over that weekend provided wonderful believers from this body who said, we've got a wheelchair, we have a walker, we've got that really cool toilet seat you don't want to give up. We've got some extra oxycut. Well, I wasn't supposed to say that, but we... <laughs> when you realize, when you realize and are reminded of his sovereign power, he rules and reigns over everything, period. He created everything in his hands. The concept, the sense in the Hebrew is not only did he hold it, but he molded it and it belongs to him. It belongs to him and the saving power. Verse one, he is the rock of our salvation. The thought there is that God is the cliff in which we hide the refuge, the boulder of safety that is between us and harm. Psalm 3 says, I will lie down and sleep in the midst of my enemies. I will not fear tens of ten thousands because my God delivers me. Part of being reminded in worship that he is a saving God, not only of the course of history, not only of the church, but of you individually. Stop and think. One of the things that helps become a primer in worship for me is to just stop and ask myself in prayer, where would I be today, right now? Where would I be if God had not sought out and found me and saved me by his son? And if I had not said yes to the invitation, where would I be? Don't you love that? Well, I don't know if it's a new song or not, but um, if you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you are lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, he's a prison shaking savior. You got chains, he's a chain breaker. So what is it that surrounds you and help, makes you feel hemmed in? If it's a habit or a relationship or an attitude, what is it? that he cannot save you from if he saved you from hell. Thirdly, we're instructed, verses six and seven, come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Some translations say we are the sheep that he shepherds. There you are. In fact, that's your best side. Many of us in the Christian life do not like this analogy, but I am convinced, and according to the text, it is essential for true worship. We are instructed how to worship. We're worshiping humility and in vulnerability. But the reason we do that is not to make ourselves small, it's to remind us we are small. 
There are many of us that want to be thought of in the Christian community or even in our own lives as we want to be stallions. And I, I, please forgive me, I'm, I, I'm not going to say this right, but I'm, there's truth in it. The whole movement that the Christian faith exists to help you achieve your best self now, your best life now, forgive the drama, is not the message of the cross and it's not the message of the shepherd. The two words that should describe you and me as a Christ follower is sheep and servant. You go, well, okay, then I want to at least be the head sheep. Here's a quote from Philip Keller. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, in quotes, like children do. As some might think, they require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. He was a shepherd, and here is his point. Most of us are unaware, even in our worship, of how much saving, redeeming, freeing care has gone into this week. How much the Spirit of God has done behind the scenes in changing you and in moving and in making your path straight that you are actually totally unaware of and you need constant care because we are bad people (laughs) in need of a good Savior. This is not about self-esteem. This is about understanding who we are. Notice we are to come, verse seven, he is our God with the people of his pasture. Bow down and worship and kneel before the Lord our maker. I did it in the first service, I'd do it again, but oh, I can do it again. I think I'll be able to get up again. Here, this is a posture in worship that some of, at least those of us who are um, saved, saved Norwegians are like this. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you're Dutch, you, you raise your shoulders. If you're Episcopal, you sit in the back and you go have at it. But truly, what David is saying to us is there is a posture of humility and brokenness and vulnerability that the human heart must embrace not to make less of you, but to make more of him. And sometimes the posture in worship is just like this. I am so unworthy of the invitation, but I am so loved by you. My security and my worth does not come from my own accomplishments. It comes because I am loved by a savior who could throw the worlds into existence by the word of his mouth, and yet he loves me. He loves you. That Savior, keeping all the planets from bumping into each other, has the time to invite you and me to worship. And he waits and longs for it. Now, let's try to unpack a little bit of this weird warning. We are lovingly warned. What does this mean? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert. Were your fathers tested and tried me? For though they had seen what I did, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, these are a people whose ways are going astray. They have not known my, hearts are going astray. They have not known my ways. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing statement? 
that you could have a front row seat to the miraculous works of God and still not know his ways in the sense of knowing him who performed that miracle. Oftentimes, like spoiled children, we are very content to take the blessings of God and to seek his hand of blessing but not seek his face. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never rest. Ooh, we want to get out of this really quick. Let's go to the New Testament quick. We don't want any sense of a God who might be frustrated or angry. But the writer of Hebrews in chapter four says, let's make sure, he quotes this passage. He says, let's make sure none of us miss the grace of God. Why? Because of what was going on in Exodus 17. God's people had gotten manna, they had gotten quail, and now the Perrier had run out. And they were upset that they didn't have water when they needed it. And God had provided every step of the way from releasing them from bondage to the place they were now when they were grumbling and complaining. And so that's why Moses named the place Meribah, which means contending or testing of God. Masa, which means temptation. And basically, this is speaking of the duplicity of coming to worship or wanting the safe harbor of God, wanting to be close to him, but yet still in significant areas of our life, resisting him through a lack of submission, through a lack of surrender. I know we hate this word submission. I know it is so... um, harmfully applied in many, many, many situations. Employment, in marriage, parenting. But this is one word that we as believers, men and women, children and adults, we must learn this in order to please God, and it's submission. So let me give you two places that you could think about as we close. Number one, Worship ought to be the place where if I'm struggling in submission to God, that in a very secure place, without any fear of being rejected, why? I'm his child. I'm his sheep. God's not in the habit of losing sheep. He doesn't leave you behind because you're struggling. He draws you close and says, let's talk about this. Why in the world would you say, here's the first one, why in the world would you say yes if I've said no? Why in the world would you say, yes, gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it. I need that relationship. I need that job. I need, I am going. I need it, need it, need it. When I have said no so clearly in my word, why do you say yes? Worship gives us an opportunity to look at that and forsake that. And then secondly, when God says stay and you say go. I've got this. It's my time. Slow down. No, no, I need it. God, need it now. I, 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 need, I need to make something happen. I need to fix something now. And God is desper- desperately in the security of worship trying to get you to say, please settle down. The place of my rest is a place where you do not strive. Trust me. Trust me. And that happens in the place of worship. I think the word of God to us today is he would say to us, I am the Lord God Almighty and I am your soul's safest harbor. Father, for the words that each of us need to hear from you, thank you that you speak them personally and powerfully.
Thank you for your invitation. We feel so loved when we say yes to you. Bless us, Father, as we continue to worship you and take this truth from your word out into our week. In Christ's name.